All right, so uh, we are going to uh, prepare for the very first for Advent with the very first um, Advent message, and um, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter three and Luke chapter one. So if you have a Bible, open up to Genesis three and Luke chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, this is the cue. These lovely folks back here have Bibles, and they'll give you one if you raise your hand. It's real magical. You raise your hand, boom, Bible. It's just like that, boom, Bible. And but you got to raise it so they can see it. What is an elder doing without a Bible? Oh it's, oh, it's the wife you gave me, Lord. Oh, sharing, sharing with my wife. Your daughters have their Bible. I'm sorry, man. I, that was just rude. Don't quit as an elder, please. We have great elders, uh, and I'm, I just, I don't know why I did that. All right, everyone have a Bible? Genesis 3 and Luke chapter 1. And before you stand, um, I want to I tell you a cute little story. Um, last week, and, and some of you are going, well, how does Advent tie in with this? And it's going to seem somewhat strange, but it will. Be patient with me. Um, I got a, an email, I think it was, from a friend or a text uh, telling me, you know, don't forget Sunday is the 51st anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And I thought, well, I don't know how to tie that into the message, and I didn't really do it. But I texted them back, and I shared with them a, a family secret. And that family secret uh, came to the surface when my mother was in ICU dying of uh, lung cancer. She, uh, the, the surgery had gone bad, and the medication had collapsed her lungs, and, and it was going to be a short moment before she'd be dead. And uh, we were having the chance to go in and visit her. But in ICU, as you know, you can only go in two or three at a time. So I was in the waiting room waiting for the rest of the family members to finish their visit with my mother. And then I was going to go in. And sitting in the waiting room of ICU was never pleasant for any of you who've been there. And I was just trying to occupy my time. And what do we do when we occupy? We play with our phones. So I'm playing with my phone and... I don't know how I ended up there, I don't know, but I ended up at a conception calendar. Yeah, strange. And I thought, well, this will be interesting. So I typed in my birth date, which is what you do on a conception calendar. You find out when you were conceived, when mom and dad got busy. That's odd. So I type in my birth date, and the conception comes out that I was conceived the day or very close to the day that Kennedy was shot. So with that intense information, I, it's my turn to go into ICU, and our family deals with pain through humor. And I walk in, and my mom's got this mask on, big fighter pilot mask, forced oxygen because her, her lung capacity is limited. And I have to talk loudly because the machine's so loud. I go, Mom, I was in the ICU, and I did the conception calendar, and I found out I was conceived the day that Kennedy was shot. And she says through the mask, We were the last in the country to know. <laughs> Oversharing <laughs> penalty, fifteen yards, and it was funny, and we giggled, and uh, and then I told the person who had texted me, I said, you know, I was conceived on that, so they said Happy Conception Day. <laughs> so last week, fifty-one years ago, I was conceived. <laughs> you don't care, you just don't care. That hurts a little bit. And now with that, let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. 
We're going to pick up in Genesis 3, and hold your place in Luke 1, but Genesis 3 is what they call the Proto-Evangelicum. Very first presentation of the gospel, Evangelicum, Ulangelion in the Greek, which means good news. The good news that mankind is, uh, needed a savior, the Lord sent his son. And it's found in Genesis 3, I'll show you exactly where. It is a, a picture of what God was intending to do to restore man because we had fallen in the Garden of Eden. God was placing the curses upon man as a result of disobedience, and we were reaping what we sowed, and God was going to give us a way out. And he states it in Genesis 3. We'll pick up at verse 14. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you shall go. And you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put, this is the Proto-Evangelicum, by the way, verse 15. And I shall put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then he goes on to say to the woman that she would have pain increased in childbirth. Adam said that because he heeded the voice of his wife, that he would, uh, he would, the ground would be cursed and he would toil all the days of his life and thorns and thistles and the sweat of his face. And goes on to say in verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God gave them tunics of skin and clothed them, which was a picture already of a covering of a sacrifice. Then the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed a cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And I'll explain that in a moment. Now let's go to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to pick up at verse 30. This is Mary. And the angel said to her, verse 30, of Luke 1, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would guide and direct us and lead us into all truth, cause us to come alive to your word. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. We ask that you administer to us now in this, the Advent, that we would prepare for your coming. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please have a seat. We looked at Genesis chapter 3, the Proto-Evangelicum, which is the presentation of the gospel. Adam and Eve were told of the Lord... Uh, you may eat of any tree in the Garden of Eden freely, you may eat, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For eating it, dying, you will surely die. It's, it's current and progressive. And, um, and he gave them a reason to, and they, they ate of it. First it was Eve, then Adam, and uh, as a result, dying, they would surely die. Uh, present progressive. 
And what God did is, is he stated to them that now that sin has entered the world and man has been made to know good and evil and, and understanding the intensity of it, now that sin has entered into the world and has plagued mankind, and this has now been a part of the genetic makeup, and, and I love what Dr. Lumala said from Uganda. He said, we don't know what the fruit was, but in opening it, there was probably everything necessary in the DNA that just spread sin through the world. This idea of, of the second law of thermodynamics, that everything reduces to its least common denominator that's winding down and being destroyed and, and breaking down. And it's, it's mankind that repairs and fixes. And, 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 and yet when we are, remove ourselves from God and the giver of life, everything breaks down again. And, and as we've been studying last week, as we started in the book of Romans, we, we see this idea that you have a government recognizing God and a government that doesn't recognize God. And then you have, you have this structure and the form of a government that recognizes God where there's a supreme lawgiver and man's laws are subject to the supreme lawgiver so that we have absolutes that govern us. And as I shared with you before, raising my right hand when I was sworn in to the city council, no longer am I to put my hand on the Bible. And as I'm swearing, who am I swearing to? What am I swearing? And what the person is saying, do I necessarily have to interpret it the way they're interpreting it? Everything is open to situational ethics. Everything is open to interpretation because there's no absolutes. And the people who make the rules are the ones in power. So what what happens when you remove God from the equation is that governments of man tend to focus towards authoritarianism, which would be communism, fascism, socialism, and, oh, I, I tried to keep the baby happy. I'm sorry. It'd actually be timely, Christmas babies stuff. But with this idea that, that, that when you remove God from the equation, the governments of man tend to go to a place of authoritarianism with an elite that would establish and take away what we have in America of liberty and, and license, liberty and license. It's a balance. And, and when we take away our accountability to God, that license then becomes everyone doing as seems fit in their own eyes, and then chaos results. And when chaos results, as Benjamin Franklin said, any man who'd give up his liberty for the sake of security deserves neither. And so we look to the government to protect us, and our prisons increase, our government increases, and our liberties decrease. And that is the government of man, removing God from the equation that every man is responsible and accountable to God to give an accounting of their life. We no longer teach our children that. We no longer instruct in our schools. And so this liberty with license is destroyed, and we go to a form of authoritarianism in a government and away from a representative form of government with liberty and license, which is what we're witnessing in our generation. It's not hard to see. And, and as a result of this, there's a breakdown in society. There's a breakdown in society, and there's no absolutes. And the people that are in power are the ones that make the rules. And even if we are accountable to God and we recognize God's law and supreme law, if those people in power reject that, then we are the ones subject to persecution. And those things we hold dear are attacked. And you have arbitrary laws being made and you, you have these the liberties removed from mankind. And it is enforced by the point of a gun. And that's where we are in this culture. We're in a postmodern world where Christianity is fading away and authoritarian government is increasing and there's chaos around the world. God came to restore order. He came to bring justice and judgment and peace and the governments would be upon his shoulder. And this is the idea of man being accountable to God. The governments could be founded and with this principle that with accountability to God, we would have order. But now we're watching as chaos is, is coming in and creeping in daily. Well, as a result of that, we see a picture in Genesis 3, the very same picture. Evil, chaos entered into the world. Man did what seemed was right in his own eyes, walked away from God, didn't honor the lawgiver, didn't honor his commandments, didn't obey his word. 
And as we see in Romans 1, the wrath of God. The wrath of God isn't a capricious God wanting to dump on man. The wrath of God is simply saying he gave them over to a reprobate mind. He just gave them over. He said, you're going to reap what you sow. If you want this, I'll give it to you. And he gives it to them. And man innately goes to this place where they're reaping what they're sowing. And we can go through as we will later when we come back to Romans. You see how it manifests itself in culture. Our, 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 our sexual deviance, drug use, all of these things start to manifest itself in a culture that walks away from God. And God came that we might have life and life more abundant, a focus towards families, a focus towards structure. And here in Genesis, what happened is Adam and Eve walked away from God. And in walking away, they're dying, they would, you know, current and progressive. What God did is they were in the Garden of Eden, he saw the tree of life, and he said, I'm not going to have them sealed in their perdition, I'm going to give them grace. Grace was defined as time. And so he, he brought them out of an eternal garden into a temporal world and sealed the Garden of Eden off to them so they wouldn't be sealed in their perdition and gave them grace, which is time. And from the time of man's birth to the time of his death, we're on this earth for one purpose, and that's to be reconciled to God. It's the, the Latin term for religion, to relink, relongari, to relink to God, to reconnect with God. And so every man is without excuse. We know that we've fallen short. We know that we're not perfect. How do we reconcile to a perfect, holy, and just God when the things that we swear we'll never do, we do, and the sins, things that we can't say no to, that we want to say no to, we never can? How do we reconcile to this God? Well, as we saw previously, there's two religions in the world, only two. There's man's religion and God's religion. Man is trying to get to God by improving themselves. And God's religion is, you know, the sin is the, the, bulls, the, the arrow hits here, the bullseye's here, and that's called the sin distance, how far the arrow's fallen from perfection. Man's religion is trying to hit the bullseye and never being able to. God's religion is as he moves the bullseye to where man is and casts our sin as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. He pays the penalty, so he's just and he's, and he's merciful. His son takes the penalty. His son was born to crush the head of Satan so that we would have victory over sin and death. We have, we have power over the, 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 the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It's like a plane is bound by gravity, the law of gravity. But because of the law of lift and inertia, it overcomes the law of gravity. We're bound by the law of sin and death. We overcome that by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And this is the hope for the world. This is the good news for the world. This is the evangelicum, the oolongelion, the proto-evangelicum. That God even said to Adam and Eve that I am going that, 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 that through your seed... Your child, through this, the seed of, of man, will come the Savior of the world who will crush the head of Satan. And so we see this. And this is thousands and thousands of years. And then we come to, to Luke chapter 1 and the picture of this. Unto us a child is given, unto us a child is born. The government will be upon his shoulders. Emmanuel, God with us, tabernacled with man. Here we see the picture that, that the angel says to Mary, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive, and in your womb will bring forth a son, and you should call his name Jesus. You should call his name Jesus. He'll be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. He brings hope into the world. Now I share all this with, with you because between Genesis 3 and Luke 1, thousands of years have passed. And you can imagine, even Eve, when she had her first child, was thinking, this is, this is the hope of mankind. And then sh- shortly saw, there, there's, there's no hope in mankind if this child is the one. He's awful. Cain and Abel, you know the story. 
And, and they're wondering, and all of the Old Testament saints are wondering when this Messiah is going to come. And, and prophet after prophet would speak of the Messiah. And Psalm 22, and Isaiah 53, and on and on and on. The declaration of Messiah that would come. And here we find the fulfillment of it. Even in Luke chapter 2, Simeon holding the Christ child on the eighth day in his arms. And the consolation of Israel. He, God said he wouldn't die until he saw the Savior. He had been waiting his whole life with his elderly hand shaking, holding the Christ child in his arms. And really what we see between Genesis 3 and Luke 1 is patience. A lot of patience. Amen? Well, that's Advent. Be patient. I find in our culture, in a postmodern world, that the world has given up waiting. Samuel Beckett's play, and I hope I pronounce it correctly, it was entitled Waiting for Godot. And it's a satire on the human condition. And I love the synopsis. It says, as Beckett sees it, humanity is waiting for Godot, or God, to come and save them. But he never shows up. Their waiting is in vain. For although they have been repeatedly told that God is coming, he never has and never will. The characters in the play are told to wait for Godot, for he might come tomorrow. And so they continue to wait in their dreary existence. The only prop in the play is a dead tree. The implication in all this is that there is no God and no Savior. Life, according to Beckett and, the fellow, and his fellow existentialists, is that life is absurd. There is no ultimate meaning to existence, and so we have to create our own meaning and without artificial props like a belief in God. The tradition of God coming to earth to save humankind is very strong so that it pervades our thoughts and conversations. Beckett wants to dismantle this belief for us. He believes that Many people live their whole lives waiting for God to show up, but their waiting is in vain. Well, here we are in the postmodern world, and you as Christians are the dumbest of all. That you would believe that there's a Savior who's coming again. Even though history records that Jesus came, even though we see the empty tomb, even though we see the Messianic Psalms fulfilled, even though we see the more sure word of prophecy, even though we have this evidence. It's, it's not that the evidence is lacking in the proof of Christianity. It's that men love sin more than darkness, and they want to remove God from the equation. Man wants to do what man wants to do, and they don't want to be accountable to God. And thus we have a breakdown in society, and, and, it, and, and destruction awaits mankind. And, and yet God commands us, and especially this in the first week of Advent, God commands us to wait. Wait. And how do we wait for God? Well, the first way to wait for God is to wait patiently. But the hardest part of waiting is waiting, right? I mean, we're in the culture where we're watching a microwave burrito going, come on, <laughs> hurry up. Pop-Tarts, you can put them in the toaster for like a minute. But they have microwave instructions in case a minute is too long. You can nuke it for three seconds. Strange culture we live in. Waiting involves time. And we have money, but no time. And we don't know when the waiting will be over. From Genesis 3 to Luke 1, thousands of years, and here we are waiting for the second return of Christ. And we have play after play and sitcom after sitcom and movie after movie telling us that this is a farce and a joke. 
And while we abandon the thought of a returning Savior that we'll, give, that we'll have to give an accounting of our life and stand before Him, and the Bible says it's appointed once for a man to die, then judgment, we stand before God, give an accounting of our life, we have removed God from the equation, and we have been left to our own devices, and we're reaping what we've sown. We're watching as a government that was conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. We're watching as that nation is passing from the scene of, of history. Rapidly. We long to try to save it. We long to try to redeem it. We we long for a revival in the hearts of men. And yet we're struggling. We're struggling as a culture tends to, to reject anything pertaining to God. And to have some sort of a, a concept of God is almost laughable. I was asked to quote, be quoted in an article in the Acorn, and I, I purposed in my heart to, to, to quote in this, in, in this article. I, I knew that the last time they'd asked me to do a religious article, I had done it, and they rejected it because it, I guess it was too Christian. I don't know. I don't know all the detail. I don't want to presume upon the editor or the, the reporter. I don't know. But I do know that in this article, I was interviewed and I said four times very clearly, Thanksgiving is not being in love with the gifts, but the giver of the gifts. And I was quoted as, Thanksgiving is not being in love with the gifts, but the givers of the gift. Anyone who knows me knows that those words would never have left my mouth. I don't care if you give me a gift, I'm not in love with you. I love me. No, I, I, I'm in love with the Lord. The giver of the gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father. And I left it nebulous so they at least keep in a deity reference. And they couldn't even do... I don't know if it was intentional. I have to be very cautious. I did write a letter and they said they'd find out. And they corrected it online, I've been told. And I'm thankful. But this is the culture we're in. Any reference of God, any mention of God, anywhere in anything that pertains to education of the populace is under direct attack. We are done waiting. He's not coming. It's a dead tree. It's jewelry on your neck. And yet we gather at Advent because we know he's coming. And he's proven himself faithful in our life. Yes. The hardest part of waiting is waiting. I love what Romans 8 says. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it. Patiently, patiently. Waiting is a period of learning. We learn a lot when we wait upon the Lord. The longer we wait, the more we hear about Him for whom we are waiting. And the most important thing about waiting and to to be mindful of is waiting is not a static state. What are you doing? I'm waiting. Waiting is not static. It's a time when God is working behind the scenes and he's using you in faithfulness. The primary focus of his work is on us and in us and through us. I like what Eugene Peterson paraphrases Romans 8 with. He says, waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in waiting as in pregnancy. 
God is creating his life within us, and we must wait for it to come to full term. And I just, I, I think of, of my wife. Four children she gave birth to, one we adopted. Natasha was Michelle's largest baby and longest delivery. 12 years and over 100 pounds. But the children that she gave physical birth to, all the children were over nine pounds. Michael was born over 10. And I, I remember specifically Kelly. Kelly was the kicker because we were completely broke. And we were living in Fresno, and I couldn't even afford air conditioning. And Kelly was born early October, so in the third trimester, late August in Fresno, the hottest summer on record. I'm like 50 days over triple digits. People in, in, in Fresno, it was like living on the surface of the sun. People in Fresno would go in the summer, they'd try to go to hell to avoid the heat. And, and, and I had no money for air conditioning. We had a pool in this dilapidated complex that the two of us would just float in. And, and, and Michelle was so pregnant. And you, you know that third trimester, for any of you who've been there, ladies, it just, it, when is this thing going to leave? Just go already, good Lord. And, and, and the, just the misery of that, oh, and every joint hurt. Every night I'm rubbing her feet and she's just in pain hurting, right? And yet, this is the idea that the longer we waited, the more pregnant she became. And the baby got bigger and bigger. And then, boom. And I think this idea of waiting patiently for the Lord, as we saw in Eugene Peterson's picture in Romans 8.24, is that waiting doesn't diminish a pregnant mother and waiting doesn't diminish us. It increases our faith. You know, when God said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and he goes and tells Pharaoh, the first thing Pharaoh says is, who am I that I should obey God? Or who is God that I should obey him is basically the translation. And instead of obeying what God had commanded Pharaoh to do, he looks at Moses and he says, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to cut your straw output, or we're going to cut your straw supplies, and we're going to increase your output of bricks. And Moses is looking to God like, what in the world? I did what you asked me to do. I was fine. 40 years I was in the backside of the desert, happy with the sheep. I never, you came to me in a burning bush and told me to talk to Pharaoh. I talked to him. And now everybody hates me, and I'm sitting here waiting while everybody hates me. And from, 40, from, excuse me, from 80 to 120, the most intense spiritual attacks he's ever experienced. I, he's just like, I could have done this when I was in my 40s, but no, you abandoned me. And now you put me in the backside of the desert from 40 to 80, and now I'm from 80 to 120, and you're really turning up the heat, and you're making Pharaoh dump on me and all the people I'm supposed to deliver dump on me. And all the time, Moses is saying, God, I get it. I'm waiting. Joseph in a prison, waiting. Paul in the backside of the desert, waiting. David in the backside of the desert, waiting. Patience. God is faithful. He wants his people to wait upon him and trust him. The second way in which we wait is not just to, to wait patiently, but to wait expectantly. To wait expectantly. I love this. The author says, I suppose that an expectant mother sometimes thinks, is this baby ever going to come? Especially if she's past her due date. And you think about that. And I remember with, with Daniel, we, we were, that was the child that I was expectant most of because Michelle had almost died with our first pregnancy. She miscarried and he almost bled to death. And, and we were scared and, and, and nervous about a second pregnancy. 
And then Molly was born, and then Kelly was born, and then another miscarriage between um, uh, Kelly and Daniel. And, and at that point, Michelle just didn't want to face it anymore. And we thought, we'll just stop with two kids. And, and um, we were still kind of contemplating that, taking it to the Lord. And I was doing my devotion one morning early, and I read in the Psalms that your sons will be as olive shoots around your table. I really believe that God has spoken to my heart and said we're going to have sons. And uh, I, I, so much so, an impression in my heart, and some of you might think I'm wacko or whatever, I, I knew God had spoken to me. It wasn't an audible voice. All I can tell you, it was a very clear impression. I go in, I woke my wife up. It was so clear. I woke her up, and I said, honey, I think we're going to have a son. Not just one, but maybe two, maybe more. And she looks at me, and she's just exhausted. She goes, no, no, we aren't. And I, I, don't, know, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm, like, get away from me. I'm like, all right, Mary. And, um, and a, a two weeks, three weeks later, she comes into my, my, my uh, study. I was doing my devotion in the morning. She's not usually up that early at that time, you know, because she had the kids underfoot. And we took shifts, and, and she came in. She's holding up a pregnancy stick. She says, we're going to have a baby. I'm like, wow, we're going to have a boy. She goes, I, I think God told me the same thing. I said, let's just pray and ask God for a name. And you put the name in an envelope, and I'll put the name in an envelope. She said, okay. And we prayed, and we both put the name in, a boy's name. And at Christmas time, we opened it up, and we were expectant. And I mean, my hand was shaking when I'm opening this envelope, and I open it up, and it's Daniel. And, and I open hers up, Daniel. And we both opened the same envelope. like, Daniel, God spoke, it's going to be a boy. We're just thrilled, just overjoyed. I mean, it was, it was a God thing. If there ever was, this was so profound for both of us. It had, it had taken us through the fear of the miscarriages and the near-death experience and all of that, and we know we're going to have a boy. God is my judge, is his name, and his, God's hand's going to be on him. And I called my mother, and I said, Mom, you won't believe it. I went through the whole thing and laid it out. My mother goes, no child, no grandchild of mine is going to be named Daniel. She hung up the phone, and I'm like, what in the world? Called her back. You heard the story. And when I called her back, I said, Mom, what's the deal? And she says, that name is awful. I said, tell me why. And she said, well, do you know your grandfather's name? I said, no, you never talk about him. His name was Daniel Frank McKee, the most awful man that ever lived. I said, well, Mom, I'm sorry about that, but the boy's name is going to be Daniel. And, of course, when Daniel was born, she kept saying his name over. Cathartic experience really transformed her heart, brought healing into her life. It was precious. And Daniel was her favorite of the grandkids. Really, really sweet. And that was a child that I was expecting on because I had laid it all out there by faith. We didn't do any ultrasound. We didn't do any blood tests, nothing. And we, we were, we, by faith, we were standing on that. And sure enough, the boy comes out. And Daniel, boom, take that and put it in your pipe and smoke it, Mom. There you go. God's got your number, woman. And when it was full-time, nothing good. And, 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 and this, is, this is the other picture that we wait expectantly. When Jesus was delivered into the world, the world was enlarged with its waiting. And I, and I love that the Scripture says in Galatians 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman. Before it was time, the birth of Christ would have been premature, but when the time came, nothing could hold him back, nothing. When it's time for Christ to return, nothing will be able to hold him back. We wait expectantly. I, I think of holding back. My last child born through Michelle was Michael. Quick delivery. It was a Wednesday night. Uh, and, and we had to drive to the hospital after the service. And Michelle says, go tell the nurse to get Dr. Van Geem. It's going to be a quick delivery because Michelle's labors would exponentially decrease. And we just knew this one was going to be like she'd sneeze and the baby would come out. I tell the nurse, nurse gives me hassle. She's like, no, we'll call him when it's necessary. We've been doing this a long time, Mr. McCoy. Go back to your room. Shut up. And so I didn't say that. That was on the inside. On the outside, yes, ma'am. You know, and I, 
And I go back to Michelle. She goes, is it Dr. Van Gieren? No, I, I didn't. I, no. Mm-mm. She goes, it's time. Go get the nurse now. And I go get the nurse. Nurse comes back irritated, like, oh, okay. She puts her coffee down, comes in, goes to check Michelle to see how dilated she Right then, the water burst, gets all over the nurse. I'm like, thank you, God. <laughs> And I mean, I mean, when Michael's coming out, Michael's coming out. Ten pounder, this kid just, he's just out there like, let's do this. And, you know, who is like the Lord? And this kid's just filled with joy. And he was born animated. And, and, uh, and, and nothing could hold him back. And even the doctor wasn't there. And, and Michelle's mother barely made it in time. And I, you know, it was just, it was intense. And this is the idea that, that, that at the proper time, when the fullness of time has come, he will return. And, and you can think this baby's never coming. And you can, you can listen to, to, to Godot, and you can, you can Beckett's lines, and, and, and all the world's whining, and, and all their dismissal of God, as they sow to these things that create just absolute despotism. And we watch a world just falling into chaos, and, and all of this liberty being removed. And they, they try to silence anyone who declares anything other than, than, than man being the center of the universe. And their ignorance. I love the story of this idea of, of waiting with expectancy. It's a story told by Gary Preston. And the story is back in when the telegraph was the fastest means of long distance communication. There was a story about a young man who applied for a job at the Morse code operator company. He answered the ad in the newspaper, and he went into the address that was listed. When he arrived, he entered into the large, noisy office, and in the background, a telegraph clacked away. And a sign on the receptionist's counter instructed the job applicants to fill out a form and wait until they were summoned to enter the inner office. And the young man completed the form, sat down, and there were other seven applicants who were ahead of him waiting, and they were all waiting for their turn in line. And all of a sudden, this young man gets up, and he, he walks past the other seven, goes right into the office of the manager... And they're looking at him like, what do you think you're doing? And he just walks past them, sits down in the manager's office. And uh, the doors close, and he comes out, and the manager comes out with him and says, well, fellas, we've hired uh, our newest uh, operator, and all of you can go home now. And they go, wait a minute, we were all in line ahead of him. And he said, yes, I understand that. But if you, he said, uh, the employer responded, all the time you've been sitting here, the telegraph has been ticking out the following message in Morse code. If you understand this message, then come right in. The job is yours. <laughs> None of you understood it, and the young man did, and so the job is his. The young man got his job because he wasn't just waiting. He was waiting with expectation. He was listening. God is not interested in you in being apathetic because you prayed to receive Christ as your Savior, and you're going to do nothing. There's a world that needs to be reached. Waiting doesn't mean sitting down. Waiting doesn't mean to be pre-trib, pre-millennial and run up your credit cards and wait on a mountain for the rapture. <laughs> Waiting means making changes and, and investing in the world and bringing order out of chaos. Investing in every nook and cranny of culture. The final way that we wait for God is we wait faithfully. We wait faithfully. Faithfully means full of faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Faith completely trusts and depends on God. It's active, not passive. Faith. Faith. I, I, I marvel at the things God commands his, his people to do. Tithe. 
You're going to give a tenth of your income to a God you can't see? Prayer. You're going to pray to a God you can't see? Fast? You're going to fast? Deny yourself your fourth most intense drive is hunger? You're going to deny yourself food for a God you can't see? These are all acts of faith. It's a measurement of your trust. Do you believe him? The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 9, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. You see, the race is to those who have endured. You've endured. You wait with patience. You wait expectantly. You live in faithfulness to God. Whether your faithfulness tends to be noticed or rewarded, I like what the scripture says in Isaiah 40, verse 31. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. I share all that with you because in the last 10 minutes that we have together, before we close with a time of worship, to ask God to seal this message into our heart, I try to share this portion of Advent every Christmas. I began with a picture of it. And I want to conclude with an understanding of it. From Genesis 3 to Luke 1, thousands of years passed. We even get to Luke chapter 2 and Simeon, who is this ancient man. He's very old. And he was devout and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And God promised him he wouldn't die until he saw the Christ child. And he held this baby in his arms in Luke chapter 2. And he said, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon was waiting. He waited the course of his life, trusted God on this incredible promise that everyone else would have rejected and most people would have mocked. But God fulfills his promise. He's true to his word. God had promised a savior. And for thousands of years through Messianic Psalms, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Simeon had focused on these things and here he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. God's people waited. I like what David wrote in Psalm 130. He said, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is the full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Isaiah waited. He wrote in Isaiah 26, 8, Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desires of our heart. For centuries, people have waited. You're no different. I'm no different. Noah and his children waited for the flood. He was a preacher of righteousness for over 100 years, building an ark where there was no water. You can imagine the mockery they faced. Abraham waited. The Israelites waited 400 years of slavery. They waited through 40 years in the wilderness. They waited 70 years after the exile in Babylon to return. And you just see all of this. The psalmist wrote, Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord, Psalm 27. And I think about the idea of Simeon holding this little baby in his arms. Wait for him. He believed in the Lord. He waited patiently and expectantly. He committed to him. He submitted to him. He embraced him. He held him in his arms. And I share that with you because here we are at Advent, the beginning of Advent. 
It's easy for you to just give up. It's easy to give up. You know, my, my wife said, this year, let's go to my sister's house for Christmas. They live up in Windsor, California, Northern California. And that means that I do the Christmas Eve service and I drive all night to get there and they want to be with family and I get it and I'm all right. I'd rather stay here and do nothing and just enjoy Christmas in my home. But I understand family. And there's so many requirements. I mean, so much to do and people to think of and reciprocating with gifts and parties. And I don't even know what I'm supposed to do as a council member. That's like, forget that. I don't even do it well as a pastor, a council member. I have no idea. You know, who am I supposed to? I don't even do Christmas cards. If you're expecting a Christmas card, don't. It's not coming. That's one I can tell you don't wait patiently for. But, but Christmas lights. So one thing we do every year, we do Christmas lights. And I have four-foot signs that spell Jesus. It goes on the roof. You can see it when you fly over in a plane. And we do the lights with a manger scene in the front. And I test when We live on a cul-de-sac. Not many people see it. But the ones who do, man, they get a picture of Jesus. <laughs> and it's a lot of work. And then putting them back in and changing the light bulbs. And every year and investing in that. And, you know, budgeting for the electric bill that's through the roof. And unbelievable. And I, was, I turned to Michelle and I said, honey, we're going north. Oh, I'm sorry. I did another one. I'm two for two. Go to dad. Grandma? Grandma? Is grandma doing it? No. Grandpa's not even touching him. I'm almost finished. Six minutes. So, so going north, I thought, I turned to my wife. I go, honey, you know, there's a lot going on this year, so much happening. I was thinking, we're going north for Christmas. Why don't we just forego the Christmas lights? I know now. Bad idea. It just gave me that. You know, I don't thousand picture face thing there. Exhausting. Christmas is exhausting. And the Lord just says, calm down. Psalm 131, calm and quiet your soul like a weaned child. Settle down. Wait on the Lord. Take the Advent book and walk your kids through it. This is, this is a, a time for the Lord. Or you can just fall prey. He's not coming. And Christmas is just a, a farce. And, I, and I'm, I'm just going to do, do the compartmentalizing that I'll go to church on Christmas Eve and then I've got to drive north. I just got to get it all in. We've got to get the lights up and just get the, the, and just, I hope we get through this season. Wow. Rob, settle down. You thought it was you. I'm just talking to me up here and I'm answering myself. We've got problems. It's Advent. We're preparing for the fact that he already came, but more importantly, that he's coming again refocusing in the coming year what it's all about. Beckett wasn't right. There is a God and he loves you. And the Proto-Evangelicum in Genesis 3 is the same one that, was, that occurred in Luke chapter 1. And I share this every Christmas to the best of my ability. And for those of you who have heard it, and you go, I've heard that. Well, then you can pray because there's others that haven't. You know, I, I was burdened by what I saw in Colorado at the Planned Parenthood. I'm burdened that some idiot here threw an incendiary device in the Planned Parenthood. 
That's not pro-life. That's awful. I'm pro-life. I call for the defunding of Planned Parenthood. But let it be known, I don't support or advocate or get behind or even remotely say anything in favor of of those idiots. I don't. It's wrong. But so is the taking of a baby, baby's life. And in a culture that doesn't value life, we as God's people do. And the reason why I'm so pro-life, there's two very profound reasons, and one I don't have time to share with you, but the other I do. It's Christmas. We read Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 36. And Mary, being with child, as the angel spoke to her, Verse 35 says, the angel answered and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And verse 36 always baffled me. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. That would have been fine. But it added, and this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. So what? Is she pregnant? Nine months, six months, she's pregnant. Well, I conclude with this idea. We don't know when Jesus was born. It's not recorded anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't say anywhere in the scriptures that he was born on December 25th. There's nowhere in secular history. No one knows the specific date of Christ's birth. Not on the Roman calendar or the Hebrew calendar or any other calendar. We don't know. I want to read to you, and I could recite it, but I'd just do best to read it to you. Listen to this. Theologians, whether Protestant or Roman Catholic, and secular historians do not dispute how and why the December 25th date was arbitrarily chosen by the Roman church in the 4th century. Christmas did not begin to be observed until hundreds of years after Christ's birth for no other reason than to attempt to supersede, even though a number of the same activities from pagan festivals were adopted into the tradition of Christmas observance, This was seen today to include Yule logs, mistletoe, Christmas tree itself. It was a century-old pagan holiday called Sol Invictus, the Invincible Sun. It was held on the date to celebrate the return of the sun, longer daylight. And after the passing of the winter solstice on December 21st, they would do this. And some of you are going, well, that's that's right. I believe the Yule log and the Christmas tree are pagan. Give it a rest. The, the, the church redeemed those. All things are permissible. Not all things are profitable. We have liberty. We have the opportunity to use these things to redeem and put a Christian influence on it. I thought it was brilliant. And you want to celebrate the birth of Christ on December 25th? Great. And it's, and it's a powerful time. I just want to give you another perspective that ministers to me. And whether you believe it or not, that's okay. The traditional customs connected with Christmas have developed from several sources as a result of the coincidence of the celebration of the birth of Christ with the pagan culture and solar observances of midwinter. In the Roman world, the Saturnalia, December 17th, was a time of merrymaking and exchanging of gifts. December 25th was also regarded as the birth date of the Iranian mystery god Mithra, the son of righteousness, on the Roman New Year. On January 1st, houses were decorated with greenery and lights and gifts were given to children and the poor. To these observances were added the German and Celtic rites with the Teutonic tribes penetrating into Gaul, Britain, Central Europe. Food and good fellowship, the Yule log, Yule cakes, greenery, fir trees, gifts, greetings, all commemorated different aspects of the festive season. Fires and lights, symbols of warmth and lasting life have always been associated with winter festivals, both pagan and Christian. 
Since the Middle Ages, evergreens as symbols of survival have been associated with Christmas. But here is a biblical insight. All things being equal, as a simple matter of probability, December 25th has a 1 out of 365 chance of being the date of Christ's birth, right? Now, if the Roman festival that Christmas was intended to replace had been on, for example, July 1st, then Christmas would today be observed on July 1st and so on. December 25th was chosen simply because of the pagan festival, and that was observed long before the birth of Christ was observed on December 25th. But, as we shall, this is what he says, we shall see based on the available biblical facts, December 25th has a far less than 1 in 365 chance of being the right date. Almost finished, pay attention. If we can't know the specific date of Christ's birth, can we at least know the season with reasonable certainty? The answer is yes. Ironically, one of the most well-known Christmas verses of the Bible quoted that we read proves that Christ was not born in the winter. The land of Israel was relatively moderate climate, at least in comparison to many other places on the earth, but in winter it is commonly cold and wet. As lightly clothed Christmas tourists and arriving in Bethlehem from other parts of the world have sometimes learned the hard way, with light snow also possible. Good shepherds back then and now do not leave their sheep or themselves out in the open in the country in winter. The reality of the scriptures makes plain that Christ was not born in the winter, but sometime during the fair weather months. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. She brought forth her firstborn, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. For the same reason, the famous census that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem would not have been ordered to be done in the winter, having an entire population traveling in the open on foot or in donkeys during the worst weather of the year is just plain foolish, and the Romans weren't fools. They were brutes, but they weren't fools. They were very practical and methodical. They would have done the census when the weather and the agricultural-based society that the Romans were taxing uh, wouldn't be interfered with, so they could best afford to be away. So this would be done in the late fall after the harvest was already in. And um, people usually traveled home for the holidays, but they didn't travel home for the holidays, traveled home for the holy days, and this would be a great chance. The Feast of Tabernacles. He tabernacled with us, the Feast of Tabernacles. And that was in September. And it came to pass in those days that there went a decree from Caesar Augustus that the world should be taxed. And so we see all this. That's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Can we then also know from the Holy Scriptures approximately what month the Messiah was born? Well, yeah. Yeah. The Bible plainly states that John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus Christ, right? Elizabeth was in her sixth month when Mary was herself with child. Remember we read that verse? Kind of obscure. Why? Well, this is what's fascinating because we read that, and here's what we'll close with. When We can find out when John the Baptist was born. There are indications based on the Bible. John's father was Zechariah, Correct? Okay? He was a Levite priest, right? Hello? The priest served in regularly scheduled groups or courses at the temple as specified in 1 Chronicles 24, verses 7 through 19. Zechariah was in the course of Abijah, which was the eighth course, 1 Chronicles 24, 10. Numerous Christian and Jewish researchers have calculated, and this is interesting, that Zechariah's course served in the month of Sivan of the Hebrew calendar, which corresponds roughly to June on the Roman calendar. The Bible says that Elizabeth conceived immediately after Zechariah's service was completed, so that would have been June or July when they missed the assassination of John F. Kennedy. 
With John the Baptist conceived in June or July, according to the scripture information provided, he would have been born nine months later in March or April. We already know that John was born six months before Jesus. So with John born in March or April, Jesus would have been born in September or October. That means that Jesus Christ was conceived on December 25th, not born. It's fitting that we believe that a zygote is a baby. So does God. A lot of cultures, the conception date is your birth date. I would just simply say to you, as a mother is expectant, and you can see Mary when she said to the angel, and she said to the Lord, let it be unto me as you have said. I believe that that's when the conception occurred. And I believe that was the most significant moment. And then Jesus being born in September, the Feast of Tabernacles, he tabernacled with us. To me, it's such a profound picture that life in its minutest form is precious to God. And that Christmas, like an expecting mother, is what we're called to do. Wait patiently, but expectantly, and with faith, just like we did with Daniel. This is going to be a wonderful Christmas for all of us. God's got a wonderful, wonderful year in store for us. We're not going to fail in waiting, and we're not going to grow weary in well-doing. God's going to move in and through us as a fellowship to touch our lives deeply. Let this message sink into your heart, and let's prepare for Christmas as we close with a couple of songs of worship. I'm going to invite the worship team up now. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for your faithfulness in our lives. I thank you the simplicity that whether, Lord Jesus, you were born on December 21st or conceived on December, excuse me, born on December 25th or conceived on December 25th, Lord, the joy is we celebrate you. Every day is a day of Jesus. And Lord, we expectantly wait for your soon return or your people. Lord, increase our faith and help our disbelief. Cause us to be men and women who are not static, but active. That our faith would produce works to express our love for you. Not because we have to, but because we get to. And Lord, in this time of worship, may this message and your word sink deeply into our heart as we prepare for Christmas. Putting aside the thousand things we're thinking of and where we need to be this morning. And just stop and spend time with you. Lord, inhabit the praises of your people and minister to our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.